listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor David Sinclair. Today I will be reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the moment at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Jeannie. You know, in recent years, there's been a lot of talk about the possibility that one day robots could take over our jobs. Um, th- with the advancement of artificial intelligence, you know, lots of people have said it's, it's not far-fetched to think that many of our jobs could be in jeopardy to being replaced by a super intelligent machine. And maybe you're saying, oh, Pastor Dave, that doesn't worry me. I'd actually be happy if my job got taken over by a robot. I'd be fine doing something else. But what if your job was threatened, like the very, the very purpose for which you were made, that thing that you were built to do, what if that was threatened by being given to something else or someone else? be a little bit different story. Jesus says here in our text, you have a job that you were built for. You have something that you were created to do. And he says, if you don't do it, someone else will take your place. But it's not a robot. It's not a super intelligent machine. Jesus says, if you don't do it, the rocks will do it. The rocks will do it, which is a fascinating statement, isn't it? So that's what I've titled my sermon, Don't Let the Rocks Take Your Job. It's your job. First, a bit of background on this text here before we get into talking about praising God and, and the job that we're doing. Uh, this text is the, is the Palm Sunday text. And th- what's going on in Jerusalem here is the Passover, the, the biggest, most, um, most traveled for feast in Jerusalem. And so Josephus, who's a historian in the first century, he says that there could be up to 2.7 million people in Jerusalem at this time. Like, this was a really, really big deal. All these Jews traveling to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices 
and to celebrate the Passover feast together. So this is a huge deal that Jesus is going to Jerusalem for. And if we had a map, I don't have a map up, but Bethany's not too far from Jerusalem, but Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's the city on a hill. And Bethany is where his friends were, Lazarus, remember Mary and Martha? He had raised Lazarus from the dead there. And that's where he says to his disciples, you guys go on ahead and find me a colt, all right? Find me a, a young donkey. And um, of course, lots of people are in Jerusalem that come out to start to meet Jesus. And some of them were probably Galileans that were familiar with his ministry. Some of them probably just heard the crazy stuff that he was doing. Like, wouldn't you want to go see a guy who had raised people from the dead? I would. I would pay lots of money to do that, right? Uh, but they're coming out to see Jesus. And of course, uh, Luke's gospel doesn't actually record anything about palm branches. So it's Palm Sunday. And we read the gospel that forgets the, the detail about the palms. But John, Matthew, and, and uh, Mark all include this detail that they're, they're laying their coats on the road and they're, they're getting palm branches, laying those down and worshiping with the palms. And so what's going on with the palm branches? Well, the Old Testament never prescribes palm branches to be used in the Passover celebration. It was used at the Feast of Tabernacles, but never at the Passover. And so what's likely going on here is that palm branches had become sort of a nationalistic symbol of hope for Israel. They had become this, this symbol that, hey, the Messiah is coming and he's going to free us from Roman captivity. Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel about 200 years earlier, and he was cheered with palm branches and music. So we see that there. Um, palms had also been prominent at the rededication of the temple. In 164 BC, it was used on their coinage. So you just understand that palms were this symbol of hope for Israel at this time, like, hey, somebody's going to come in, they're going to free us from Rome, they're going to give us back our land, we're going to finally be free. That's what they're hoping for. And so there's this big buzz around Jesus that, could this be the guy? Could this be the Messiah? Like, he's raising dead people, he's casting out demons, he's healing the sick. Could this be the guy? And so then Jesus is riding into Jerusalem with this atmosphere. All the people worked up about him and thinking maybe he's the Messiah. And then he does this really simple prophetic act that's a huge disappointment. He tells his disciples, go get me a colt. Now, back then, if you were a military leader or if you were a king, you didn't ride in on a donkey for, for one. Donkeys were honored animals, but they were not powerful or intimidating. And a young donkey, a baby donkey, a colt, was especially not intimidating. So if you, were a, if you were a mighty warrior or a general or a king, you rode in on the most well-trained, the most beautiful, the most stunning, powerful horse you could find. That's what they had hoped for Jesus. And if Jesus would have done that, it would have gone bananas. But instead, Jesus says, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not the kind of king that comes in military might and power. I'm not the kind of king that comes to take life and destroy your enemies. I'm the kind of king that comes to give my life. So he comes in humbly riding on a donkey. It's a huge disappointment. Now with that background in mind, let's look at the text and how these people praise Jesus and what we can draw from that for our own life of praise. Because this is the thing we were created to do. We really need to look at it here. So I want us to notice three things in this text. First of all, the motive for the people's praise, the message for their praise, and the substitute. I, I know I couldn't think of another M. So I have the motive, the message, and the substitute for the people's praise. But let's start in verse 37. Fascinating here. The, the motive for the people's praise, we see it pretty clearly here. It says, as he was drawing near, 
already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. So Luke's gospel records lots of different miracles, lots of different healings, exorcisms. Jesus, of course, had raised Lazarus from the dead not long before. He's doing some crazy big things, some great things, and they wanted him to do greater things. They wanted him to do messianic things. They wanted him to take over power from Rome and give it back to Israel. They wanted him to liberate the people. Instead, Jesus comes not on a war horse, but on this donkey, gentle and meek and humble. And it's important that we look at this because I don't know about you, but whenever I read this passage and then I go on and read the passion narrative, I'm like, okay, what happened? Because these cries of Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, we all know the end of that story, right? In just a few days, what are they going to be shouting? Crucify him. What happened? Talk about bipolar. Like they're just like, Hosanna, Hosanna, wait, crucify him. Like what happened in the span of those few days? I'll tell you what happened. They got disappointed. Jesus wasn't the king that they wanted. He wasn't the king that they expected. And when we get disappointed with God, we're at the greatest risk for ditching our job of praising him. When we get disappointed with God, we're at the greatest risk for abandoning our purpose as worshipers of the king. And that's what happened with these people. So I would ask you this morning... What's your motive for praising Jesus? Is it because he's the great and cosmic king? Is it because he's your creator and your Lord and that's what you were built to do? Or is it because you're expecting something from him? Is it because you want him to do something for you? How do you praise God when things don't go your way? It's another good question to ask yourself. When he doesn't do what you think he should do. See, because it's easy to praise God when he's doing all the great things, right? We see that here. They're praising him because of all the great things that he had done. And when God's doing great things in your life, all the prayers are being answered with a yes. He's moving forward. He's doing everything the way you think he should do it. It's easy to praise God. I've had mornings like that. It's wonderful. It's easy. It flows. It's natural. But what do you do when the opposite's true? When he doesn't make sense? When the prayers are answered with a no? Or it seems like they're not answered at all? What then? you praise God still then what's the motive for your praise is it conditional we really need to think about that as we see these people and how they turn on Jesus in just a couple of days but second that brings us to the message of their praise look at verse 38 they were saying blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord peace in heaven and glory in the highest so the message of the praise of the people is right on the money they say blessed is the king they got it right Jesus was The king, of course, he wasn't the king that they wanted. And soon they would turn on him and and not be crying those things. But that's the, the message that we're supposed to carry on as well. Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. And we have to admit up front that we're kind of double minded about the whole king thing, right? Uh, We want a king, but not really. I mean, if we're really honest, we're Americans. Right? We're the people that dump the tea in the harbor. We have this, this nostalgic kind of thing going on with kings. Like we like our stories and our fables with the great King Arthur and the, ga- the great King Richard and Aragorn's going to return. And we like those things. There's sort of an ancient memory trace in us about a king. Sorry, this is popping, isn't it? Put it in my back pocket. We like all those things when it comes to a king. But we really don't want anyone telling us what to do. 
That's, I mean, that's the American way, right? Nobody can really tell me what to do. I'm free. I'm my own person. I have my rights. Well, that's not what it means to have a king. To praise Jesus rightly means to come to him as a king. To be a Christian and to become a Christian means to get a king in your life. To get a king and welcome him into your life. And many times I think we prefer to treat Jesus as a consultant. So we say, blessed is the consultant who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the consultant who gives me some good ideas. I consider them and I do what I want to do in the end. But Jesus says, no, you mustn't approach him that way. He's the great and cosmic king. And he won't allow us to approach him that way. To get a king means whatever the king wants goes. To get a king means absolute authority. To get a king means you give up all your rights. You get that? That's really un-American to say, I have no rights. As Christians, that's what we're saying. I have no rights. We just have a king. Um, I, Jenny and I traveled to Swaziland uh, in 2012, which was the last remaining absolute monarchy on earth. They actually have a king. It was called the Kingdom of Swaziland. And I noticed there's no Bill of Rights there. They don't have one. They just have a king. And whatever he says goes. Whatever he wants, they do. If he says jump, you say how high. That's the way it works in Swaziland, which is a horrible thing if you have a wicked king, but it's a wonderful thing if you have a perfect king, if you have a just king. And it's an amazing thing. So the message of our praise to Jesus is, you're the king in my life. I worship you and you alone. You have all the authority. That's what it means to praise him for who he is. Anything less than that isn't really praise of Jesus. So my question is, does the message of our praise match with the message of our lives? Like, do the two line up? What we say to him when we stand here and we praise him with our, our music and our songs, does that me message that we're sending him, you're the king in my life, Jesus, I worship you as king, does that match with the message of our lives? See, because I, I think Christians often don't tell so many lies as much as we sing them. Um, I went to a, a concert with, by, with Todd Agnew one time, and he said, when he got, came to Christian songs, he just had to stop singing some lines because he was lying. He didn't mean them. He didn't really, he, he really wasn't intending to do what he was singing. So he's just like, I just hummed them. The lines that I couldn't sing truthfully, I just started humming. And I wonder that, like, do we really say, yeah, you're the king of my life, Jesus, then we go off and we just live however we want. We, he's a king. So does the message of our life, does the message of our praise match the message of our life. So, so many people, when we look at the gospel, stopped following Jesus because they didn't want to give up control in their life, right? The rich young ruler, what must I do? Now oh, it's easy. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Nope. That's not going to happen. That's what it means to have a king. Whatever the king says goes. What will it be for us? Will our praise be backed by a life of submission to the lordship of the king? Is he really king in your life, or is, are you just saying that? That brings us to the final point. We'll spend the majority of our time here. Verses 39 through 40, there's a substitute for the praise of the people. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees are getting upset, like, hey, they're praising you, they're worshiping you like you're a god or something. Stop them. Stop them. And then Jesus says this, this incredible phrase, it's only recorded in Luke's gospel, if these were silent... These people were silent. The very stones would cry out. 
the very stones would worship me. Like, you can't stop this, because I am God. I am the king of the universe. You can't stop it. Imagine what Jesus is saying there. Like, if he was here, up here teaching, and he was like, all right, Life Church, you can praise me, or all that river rock you just put out in front of the, they're all going to start singing. You imagine that kind of a chorus? Like, all those rocks just start developing mouths and start singing praises to Jesus. That's what he's saying here. He's saying, look, here's the deal. All of creation has been caught up in this giant worship chorus to me since the beginning of time, since I created them. And they're more than happy to keep going. They're not going to stop just because you don't join in. But the invitation is, why don't you come on in and join them? Why don't you come on back to your created purpose? You can't stop the creation from doing this. In fact, all of creation has been singing this song since the beginning. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones puts this in her book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing. I'm going to read part of this quote now and then part of it later. Listen to this. She says, the whole world is singing a song. Have you heard it? The wind is whispering it in the trees. The rain is dancing it on the rooftops. The whole of creation is singing out together. God loves us. He made us. He's very pleased with us. It's the song that's been sung since the beginning. The song God created everything in his world to sing. It's the song without words. It's the song you were created to sing too. See friends, ever since Genesis and God went around creating things and he created it and then he said, that's good. It started singing back to him praises. This song that Lloyd-Jones talks about. Ever since he went to each and everything, he said, that's good, that's good, that's very good. It started singing praises to him. Psalm 66 verse 4 says as much. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. I love how C.S. Lewis illustrates this throughout the the Chronicles of Narnia. I've been reading these again with my girls. And um, I got to read this part to you. Every time Aslan shows up on the scene, I love it because all of creation just spontaneously gathers around him in this giant worship ceremony, this giant dance of worship. And so just listen to this. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but... Um, you'll get the picture here. This is what's actually going on around Jesus, if you'd pay attention, if you'd really see it. The girls watched them out of sight, standing close behind, beside Aslan. The light was changing. Low down in the east, Erevir, the morning star of Narnia, gleamed like a little moon. Aslan, who seemed larger than before, lifted his head, shook his mane, and roared. The sound, deep and throbbing, at first like an organ beginning on a low note, rose and became louder and then far louder again, till the earth and air were shaking with it. It rose up from that hill and floated across all Narnia. Down in Miraz's camp, men woke, stared palely into one another's faces, and grasped their weapons. Down below that in the great river, now at its coldest hour, the heads and shoulders of the nymphs and the great weedy bearded head of the river god rose from the water. Beyond it in every field and wood, the alert ears of rabbits rose from their holes. The sleepy heads of birds came out, of the under, came out from under wings. Owls hooted, vixens barked, hedgehogs grunted, the trees stirred. In towns and villages, mothers pressed babies close to their breasts, staring with wild eyes. Dogs whimpered and men leaped up, groping for lights. Far away on the northern frontier, the mountain giants peered from the dark gateways of their castles. When, Su- when Lucy and Susan saw... What Lucy and Susan saw was a dark something coming to them from almost every direction across the hills. Just picture this. Just things rushing towards Aslan. It looked, like, it looked first like a black mist creeping on the ground. Then like stormy waves of a black sea rising higher and higher as it came on. And then at last like what it was. 
woods on the move. All the trees of the world appeared to be rushing toward Aslan, but as they drew nearer, they looked less like trees. And when the whole crowd, bowing and curtsying and waving thin, long arms to Aslan, were all around Lucy, she saw that it was a crowd of human shapes. Pale birch girls were tossing their heads. Willow women pushed back their hair from their brooding faces to gaze on Aslan. The queenly beeches stood still and adored him. Shaggy oak men, lean and melancholy elms, shock-headed hollies, dark themselves but their wives all bright with berries, and gay rowans all bowed and rose again, shouting, Aslan, Aslan, in their various husky or creaking or wave-like voices. The crowd and the dance round Aslan, for it had become a dance once more, grew so thick and rapid that Lucy was confused. See, friends, this is why creation, nature, is so utterly beautiful to us. It's so amazing to us because it's still singing the song that we were all meant to sing from the very beginning. But now, with us at least, something's gone wrong. We feel often when, we, when we're in creation that we're on the outside of it. We're on the wrong side of the door and we can't get in. I love how C.S. Lewis addresses this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, we do not want merely to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which we can hardly put into words. To be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of the morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. Have you ever wondered why nature seems so happy and we're so sad? Has that ever just crossed your mind? Like, how, how is it that they're so joyful all the time? Have you ever wondered, like Lewis here, like why we can't seem to get on the right side of the door of creation? Why the freshness and purity of the morning, they don't make us fresh and pure? Well, the great preacher of the 1800s, George Whitfield, he had an answer for this. He says, haven't you ever noticed that when you come near the animals, they growl at us, they bark at us, the birds screech at us and fly away? Do you know why? They know that we have a quarrel with their master. Isn't that interesting? See, friends, all of creation is still singing this song that it was meant to sing from the very beginning, and we're the ones lagging behind. Romans 8 tells us as much. It says that all of creation is groaning, waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. They're waiting for us to be put back right like we were meant to be. See, the creation is still basically the way that God meant it to be. A tree is still doing basically what it was made to do in the beginning. Of course, it gets diseases, bugs, it gets chopped down, it dies. Of course, that's not like God created it to do. But it's, it's being who God made it to be as much as it can be. It's still subjected to the fall. We, on the other hand, are not. You realize we're the only part of creation that resists praising God as our great and cosmic king. The creation does it automatically. Can't stop the animals from doing it, the mountains, the trees, the plains. Can't stop the angels from praising him either. Interestingly enough, we and the fallen angels are the only people who resist it. We fight it. We, we know that we're, we belong in that. We know that, it's, it, that there's something there that we are created to do. And yet, we can't quite do it. And we might ask, why? What's preventing us? Well, it's because we're not the way that we were meant to be right now. We're fallen 
and broken because of sin. We are not good anymore as God declared us to be. You know, in the very beginning, he looked at Adam and Eve and he said, it's very good. And we know that's not true anymore. We know we're broken by sin, deeply broken. And so some of our goodness is lost. And so therefore we don't rejoice to our king, we reject him. We don't want to sing to the king. We don't want a king at all, in fact. We want to do our own thing. We have a quarrel with our maker. And that's why this passage exists. That's why when our great king came to earth and became a human, yeah, we worshipped him for a little while. We praised him for a little bit as he sat on that colt. But very, very quickly when he disappointed us, our cries turned from praises, from hallelujahs, hosannas, to crucify him, crucify him. We betrayed him, we mocked him, we whipped him and beat him, and we killed him on a Roman cross. That's what we did when the king of the universe came to earth. And in any other story, if this is how the subjects treated the king, the subjects would be utterly doomed to destruction. No hope at all. But fortunately, that's not how this story ends. See, because this king had in fact planned to die for his wicked and rebellious subjects. He had in fact planned to give his life as the sacrifice for their sins, to rise again from the dead, conquering Satan's sin and death, to put them back the way they always belonged, to invite them back into his kingdom, to give them back their goodness so that they could sing again. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, he did this to give them their song back. I'm going to read that quote that she has, but I'm going to read the full one this time. I love this. She says, the whole world is singing a song. Have you heard it? The wind is whispering it in the trees. The rain is dancing it on the rooftops. The whole of creation is singing out together. God loves us. He made us. He's very pleased with us. It's the song that's been sung since the beginning. The song God created everything in his world to sing. It's the song without words. It's the song you were created to sing too. We forgot our song long ago when we turned and ran away from God. But Jesus has come to bring us home to God and give us back our song. So go on, sing your song. Friends, that's what Jesus is saying in this passage to us this morning. He's saying, go on, sing your song. He's saying, brothers and sisters, whatever you do, do not let the rocks have your job. This is your job to praise and worship him. This is where you belong. This is where you are finally home. This is what brings you life and joy. To join in with all the creation and sing to your king to praise him. You'll never be home. You'll never really belong until you're there. Jesus has come, given his life, so that you can have your song back, so that you can join with all of creation and sing, God loves us. He made us. He's very pleased with us. Let's not wait another day to join back in, right? If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we are so thankful that you're here today. There's going to be people up here to pray for you. We would love to invite you back into your created purpose, back into relationship with the God that made you to worship him and adore him and praise him. And you can come back into relationship with him today through Jesus. He's made that way for you through his death and resurrection. For the rest of us, though, I want us to jump back into a time of worship and praise. So the worship team is going to come up here. There's nothing like talking about praise without actually doing it. All right, and so we're just going to give ourselves into another time of praising God, doing what we were made to do. But here's the thing. I would encourage you 
to really examine yourself and to say, is my life, am I only praising Jesus on Sunday morning? Because if so, you're not really, you're missing it. You're giving the rocks your job. I would encourage you, make this a habit. Develop a praise habit. And if you want an easy reminder, just look to the birds. They're great coaches. How many of you noticed that? Like since the birds came back, every single morning, doesn't matter if it's blowing 100 miles an hour, it doesn't matter if it's way colder than it's supposed to be. It doesn't matter if there's not very many worms around because it's been so dry and they're probably a little hungry. Every morning they're just up, oh, oh, praise God. It's time to praise God. Everybody on it? Let's go. Let's sing. Let's get going. And they're praising him and they're worshiping it. Not because they have to, because they were made to. So just think of yourself as a big, big bird. You're just this giant, <laughs> big songbird, you know? And, and you wake up and you're just singing to the Lord. Like that's what you were made to do. Let the birds coach you. They'll help you. Let all of creation help you. Walk outside if you need to. All right, help me. I'm not very good at this. I'm prone to looking at myself. And just let yourself loose. So I'd encourage you now as the, as the worship team leads us, grab your palm branches. Grab whatever you need to. Get out in the aisle and just turn yourself loose. It's what you were made to do. Amen, Life Church. I'm going to pray for us in this worship. Father, we thank you that you have made us. We're your creatures. You've made us to worship you. You've given us a home in that. And we fell, we broke, we went far away from you, but you have invited us back in through Jesus to our created purpose, to our right relationship with you. Would you make us people of praise? Would you make us people who have a praise habit every morning like the birds? We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.